Welcome to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, the podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders who want to help their companies execute faster. As always, we're virtual. I'm at home in Buckinghamshire. Vicky's over in deeper stuff in Oxfordshire. So Vicky, who have we got on the podcast today? Hi, Sam. Great to be back. And as you haven't mentioned pigeon cooing in the background, I'm going to mention it instead. <laughs> yeah, there's, there is a pigeon somewhere. But I'm hoping Zelda will chase it off at some point soon. <laughs> um, Darren, if you haven't seen Zelda, Zelda is... Half dog, half gerbil. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as you've just heard, I've just said Darren. So, we have Dar- Darren Thayer with us today. And Darren is the Head of Innovation and Global Strategic Initiatives at Google, based out of Singapore. So, I'm absolutely thrilled that we have you as a guest, Darren, because, we've gosh, we've got a hot topic to get into today so I'm sure you're going to explain more about your role but really what we want to talk about with you is about what makes a successful transformation and the lessons and experience that you've seen with working with the companies that you work with in the role that you have so without any more thank you so much for joining us and uh, let's get cracking fantastic welcome Darren that's a hell of a role to be in perhaps you would start if you don't mind by telling us how you got there give us something of a potted career history please yeah sure I mean I'm originally from the UK but these days I get taken for being Australian South African anything else you can imagine because I've actually been outside the UK now for 17 years. I've spent the last nine in Asia and before that, the Middle East and Africa. I would say my career has kind of taken two main tracks, really. The first is long-term consulting. I sort of worked my way from the bottom up to running regions for some consulting firms and being a partner in a fairly big consulting business. And then the other side of the career is a couple of different roles in big tech. I was in Amazon leading a transformation and innovation team for a while which was great and then I have a similar role now in Google and these days I kind of describe it as having four hats the first is my role in Google I head up an innovation team for a group called strategic global initiatives the second is uh, I teach at one of Asia's top business schools on digital innovation the third is I've been a an advisor to the G20 for the last couple of years on accelerating digitization in emerging economies. And then finally, I sit on a couple of boards for early stage startups. So that's me. That's fantastic. Nice to have it divided into four succinct areas of your role. It's a damn cool title, Head of Innovation, Global Strategic Initiatives. Damn, that's cool. (laughs) What do you do on a (laughs) day-to-day basis? Ah, good question. I guess if you look at Google and Alphabet, we have a lot of companies, right? Like really a lot. There's the obvious ones that you know about in terms of ads, Google Pay, cloud, healthcare, and travel. And there's many, many, many more. And whilst I don't necessarily think that we can solve every problem for every customer, what I do know is that in each of those businesses, there's a collection of genuinely world-class talent because it's a pretty high talent bar to get into Google and we're trying to push the boundaries on what we do all the time. So there's these, you know, these pools of incredible talents and I think we can lean in and help customers with their biggest problems. And so that's kind of the, the headline of it. And I guess how that practically works is customers will say, you know, we're already doing a bunch of work with some of your businesses can you come and help us to transform or to figure out these really big problems or we're being disrupted or 
we want to expand globally, et cetera, those sort of problems. And then typically when they do that, I will be one of the folks that leans into that. And I'll focus very specifically on new revenue growth or innovation. And I'll come at that from two angles. The first is, what are the opportunities for you? How can we identify them? And how can we work through what they are? Because ideas are a dime a dozen. So like, let's get real about what's practical and going to have material impacts. And then the second that really underpins that in my mind is what talent, culture, and organizational models need to be in place for those ideas to flourish. Because like I said, ideas are a dime a dozen. That's the easy part. You know, we could sit down now and come up with fantastic ideas, but it will be the talent behind it and how you work and collaborate and develop great products and experiences that will help you to sink or swim. And so I focus on those customers and how we can bring the best of Google and Alphabets to try and help them. Fantastic. I think, you know, when I was doing the CTO role at SoftCat, a transformation almost was a bit of a buzzword and it was all, it was a bit of a dirty word. It was a, an excuse for buying more tin or an excuse for moving some stuff to the cloud. And, and it, it often wasn't genuinely transformational. Um, what does that transformation thing mean to you? Yeah, I'm glad you call out the buzzwords because I think as an industry, we kind of like to talk yeah. about a new paradigm. and Especially when prefaced with digital. So digital transformation yeah. was, you oh, know, we're going to buy some software or we're going to buy some. I always thought it was business transformation first and digitally enabled, perhaps. Yes, I couldn't agree with you anymore. I think we get obsessed with the word digital and technology. In the reality, I think company, well, I know for a fact companies have been transforming for the last 100 plus years. And you've only got to look at, I don't know, let's say, IBM or GE as examples and track their history over the years. They've been through all manner of pivots and macroeconomic moments. And I'm not saying they've always got it right, but, you know, to your point, business transformation along the way. And so I try to simplify transformation when I talk about it so I don't get caught up in the buzzwords. And to me, it's kind of three things, really, if I think about it. The first is a firm that needs to adapt to stay competitive, whether that's their products and or profitability. You know, they, they got some pressures. They need to kind of change the game and keep up with customer expectations. Second is a firm that needs to embrace the technology opportunities at that point in time. And then third and most importantly for me is uh, a firm that wants to lean into new ways of working, how they can help their teams to be more efficient more successful and more engaged, a happy, engaged workforce can do incredible things. And so when I think about transformation, it's those things. I definitely agree with the last point, the happy and engaged workforce thing. That moves mountains. Yeah, and, and that's really why it made loads of sense to have Darren on the podcast. When we think about transformations in the tech industry, we tend to think so much that it's about the tech and we forget the people bit. So the fact that you do the role that you do, Darren, and yet the people piece is so important for you. Hear your thoughts around it. I mean, in the end, if you think about it, there's virtually no companies that I can think of that aren't driven by people and human exactly. beings and human endeavor. No matter how much we've automated it and done some wizardry around AI, it still needs some humans to drive it. And so... I think we really underestimate the importance of that and never put it at the front of our programs. And that's a big flaw, I think. 
yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Well, when we first, first met, that we it, it just it felt like it was a meeting of minds, didn't it? Of the fact that we were on the same page that that's the that's the important piece. And we say at the Amplified Group that we believe that the tech industry is powered by people. It's totally true. Totally yeah. true. And yet, it seems yeah. to have got lost. Yes, sadly so. So I'm guessing a lot of your work is at sea level, board level the people with strategic responsibility for, for their businesses must be hard for them because I guess it's dangerous, isn't it? Changing the business model or adding a new business model. What if it all goes wrong? <laughs> but at the same time, if you stay where you are, somebody else could eat your lunch. What's your experience with working with the C-suite? I mean, that's mostly where I work these days. And I tend to work more with the CEO and the board and sort of the business side of the C-suite rather than the technology side, because I'm not a sort of techie at heart. And so Mm. I try and solve the business end of these problems or challenges to try and be more positive. I think it's dangerous to stay still, truthfully. It's dangerous to become complacent or even if you're in a really successful business, let's say Tesla right now, they're in an incredible moment in time. Yes, they have a head start, but you know, if you do any research, that the next 10 car companies are all making huge investments in electric vehicles and historically have been able to churn out crazy numbers of cars. I mean, they're great at production when they get going. And so this is a moment in time kind of leadership opportunity. And if they stay still, then they'll lose it. And we've seen so many examples of that. I mean, there's lots of firms that aren't around anymore because they stayed still. So... I don't think staying still is an option, but what I would say is the number one reason for me that I see failed transformations, and we all know the stat that sort of 30% are successful, 70% fail. We've seen it from many angles. And if you unpick that, there's always really granular answers like the tech wasn't right, or we didn't set ourselves up correctly, or we didn't have the right talent in place. But a staggering stat for you is that today, only 10% of CEOs, when they're kicking off a transformation journey, acknowledge that they need to go on a personal change journey themselves and get really hands-on and tangible with that, like have a document, have a plan, work through it and track it. It just staggers me because it stands to reason that if you're going to fundamentally pivot your company from maybe not being digital to being digital or new business models or new ways of working, surely you'd need to learn some new skills to lead this organization. And surely you'd need to probably unlearn some skills along the way and just deliver your leadership in a different manner. If you don't do that, I sort of feel like you're saying, and I've seen this all too often, that you're saying, I'm going to sign the checks and it's over to you lot to transform. You know, all of you lot change the way you work and the way you behave and the way you interact, but I'm staying the same. And you you just never say that in reality. So what I encourage leaders to do really is to lean into this and to say to the executive team, what are the things that we need to be working on? Identify hard skills that you need to understand. And I consider things like agile or design thinking to be hard skills. And I'm not saying the CEO needs to be in there running workshops but they do need to understand what's a good model to run innovation through. And we need to accept failure goes hand in hand with new products. And so how can we get comfortable with that? 
how can we get comfortable being uncomfortable when somebody brings a bonkers idea to us? How can we give that a chance to, to run it through a process rather than just say no to it? And so there's these kind of hard and soft changes to be made. I think historically, big companies have made decisions top down. I think they should flip that and crowdsource ideas from the bottom and let them bubble up and then make decisions on the best ideas they see. But that needs them to be brave and willing to give up some of that command and control. And so I really believe that whilst it's scary for these leaders, we've seen so many failures in transformation why wouldn't you lean into something like this? And I know Vicky talks to putting people at the front of these programs. Why wouldn't you do both of those things? Because it just stands to reason it's going to dramatically improve the odds of your transformation. And then the last thing I'll say is, as an example, because I would like to give you a real world example. I think one of the best firms in taking this transformation journey is Adobe, in my mind. In 2008, they were decimated. They were like, crushed, really badly hurt, because they'd stood still in their words. And they did, I believe, from memory, off across the board layoffs. But you know what the CEO, Shantanu, and the CFO and the others, they didn't blame anybody. They didn't say, well, this is just unfortunate. They said, we need to own this. We can never let this happen again. We need to put in place uh, the mechanisms to transform. And what do we personally need to do? And how do we need to behave differently? And then fast forward to today, they're an incredible firm, you know, at the crossroads of digital experience and marketing, cloud-based recurring revenue models, doing better than ever. But it's because they lent in and because they owned the personal change requirements themselves. And they said, we're going to be part of this. We're going to be deeply immersed in this. And they said, we don't know if we'll always get it right, but we're going to be in it together with you as the workforce. Let's go on this journey. And I've got to say, if a leader says that, I'm going to be all in. I can go on about this forever, but you know, those are my main messages in terms of lessons learned for the C-suite. What you were saying about crowdsourcing and ideas bubbling up to the top, when we did our tech leaders survey that we've just published the re results on, one of the questions that had gone down significantly was, is there trust and belief that the best idea wins? And that had reduced by 10% over the last two years. So it feels like we're going in the wow. opposite direction. Wow. I was talking to somebody today on the topic of ESG, and I feel like the younger generation were born thinking about these topics. And they're typically the most junior talent in the organization because the younger folks need to work their way up over time. That's another area where it just stands to reason. Why wouldn't leaders create a junior board and learn from these people that are born talking about these topics and know what they want from a firm and know what's going to inspire them? Just a no-brainer to me. These things aren't creative topics. You can put in place a people program and put that front and center. That's not a creative element. Saying Likewise, putting in place a personal change plan for each of your execs. That's not a creative topic. I can give them a template tomorrow. They just need to stick to it and be humble and brave and work through it. And I would find it so inspiring if a leader said, I'm not going to share the personal details with you, but here's my plan. It's a two-year plan because I can't develop mastery in two months and I'm on it and I'm going to give you the help and support so that you can all go on your own journey. How yeah. inspiring is that? Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's being conscious and deliberate and making the effort, isn't it? And and I don't know. We seem to spend so much time in business just 
trying to describe it right not putting the right deliberate focuses in place and just letting things happen yeah and I just yeah I I liken it to if you're the c-suite and the people beneath you nail agile and they get really really good at agile suddenly and it's working wonderfully which is often not the case but you know let's say people are doing their best and it's working pretty well and they come up to the CFO and they say the, the six sprints have been brilliant we need funding for the next six most CFOs if they aren't understanding of the agile world they're going to go well the next funding window is a quarter away right or it's six months away wait for that and the same for the product team and the same for many other areas so there's a real example of why you've just got to go on the journey and understand the change that you're about to embark upon. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good, a solid example, actually. Really helpful. So um, you also alluded to, uh, you gave the example of, you know, if, if this great idea bubbles up, how, how you let that happen in a business. And I know you and I have had a discussion um, and we're both fans of Jeffrey Moore and his zones to win book. So what was, what was your perspective on that? I love the framework and I, um, it's like my go-to framework. If I can whip it out at any point, I, uh, I use it because I, it's just so simple, so effective. And I tend to use it with the lens of innovation because that's the kind of how I wear typically. And when companies ask me how they should innovate, I always say to them, the lazy innovators out there will tell you to just go build some new things. Let's build some new capabilities. Let's build a new product and build a new venture. And they probably need some of those things. Don't get me wrong. If you don't have digital capabilities, you you need them, of course. But I think those innovators give our industry a bad name as well because they don't lean into the existing part of the business and look at what they can do to add value there. And so instead, I always use this phrase, let's think of innovation like a balance sheet. And if you can imagine the four box grid that Jeffrey talks about, you know, you kind of cut it vertically down the middle And I always say that the right-hand side, the existing parts of the business, we should look at those and say, what deserves to stay and, you know, is a cash cow and is material to my future? We probably need to digitize it and enhance it and automate it, but it really deserves to be there and we're competitive in this space. But equally, let's make the hard decisions in the bottom right around what doesn't deserve to be part of our future. And leaders always shy away from those, those decisions, but... They're the things that actually can make or break a transformation and look at it as a hero's work. Because in most companies, when you say I'm going to shut down a product area or a business, it's like a redundancy package, right? It's a poison chalice to be part of that initiative. But in Google, if we ever close anything down or decide a product doesn't work or a feature isn't relevant, it's seen as a hero's task because you are freeing up resources, focus and funding so that we can do the other things on the left-hand yeah. side of the, of the balance sheet. And so these people are bonus, they're promoted, they're, you know, they're supported through this really tough grind of sunsetting and deprecating services so that we can do the interesting things on the left-hand side of the framework, you know, the kind of the five to ten big bets that are going to transform the organization. And then I talk to companies around that last box, the top left, of how we manage the move from big bets into materiality I was talking to a, an insurance CEO the other day that said, I've been using this framework that I've helped him with for a couple of years. And he said, I've got two big bets that we've just graduated to being material. 
I went to look at them to kind of understand, you know, are they really good enough? And I, you know, for a moment I was cynical. I thought that I would look at these two initiatives and think they're not really material yet. But I have to say, fair play, they're genuinely material to that business. And one of them has billion dollar revenue um, potential in the next couple of years. But they've made the classic mistake. I always say don't promote things too quickly into the material box and do them one at a time. And they promoted these two phenomenal ideas into being the same time. Material. Yeah, at the same time. And guess what? They're fighting each other They're for focus and money oh, and yeah. leadership um, kind of time. And it's such a shame. And so they're correcting that now. But I right. think this framework is so powerful and allows leaders, innovation leaders particularly, to look really holistically at the whole business. Because the biggest gripe I get from CEOs is innovators, folks like me, love to innovate in a vacuum and just come along and do the nice, new, shiny things, the kind of relatively easy things. We all love a design thinking workshop. Who doesn't? But yeah. CEOs, they have that quarterly earnings pressure. They have the need to kick goals in the year. And so I always say, use this framework. You're going to add value to the existing business because we have a set of tools and frameworks and experience with working through these complex problems and I'm not saying we need to be deeply in the middle of sunsetting some products because that's an execution challenge, but I guarantee we can help make those decisions and speed up the decisions faster and figure out how we can extract the value from those things along the way and inspire the talent. I was talking to a chief innovation officer the other day about using this framework, and I said, you should be like the cheerleader for those people doing the sunsetting task. And he said, well, there's nothing to do with me. I'm focusing on the, the new growth areas. I was like, who in the business is going to be more inspiring than you, telling them what a great job they're doing and why their work is important? You need to be in there rewarding them and engaging them and telling them afterwards that you're going to bring them into your group and give them yeah. a phenomenal gig once they've had the, the grinding task of shutting these things down. Hopefully he will listen, but these people are heroes and we need to use a framework like this to make sure we don't just do the easy thing of always looking at the new. I think that's a, it's a, a fascinating topic because it's a change in mind shift, isn't it? But what it does is it's a really great example of what we talked about at the beginning about the, the people piece and how important that is. Yeah, and I think... Some of these tasks, like the, the, the bottom tasks, if you like, the bottom left, you will know this, Vicky, the bottom left being create the next five to 10 big change bets, if you like, that are going to transform the org. And the bottom right being what's not part of our future. They're really kind of soft, challenging things to work on. Both sides are hard, actually, because, like I said, ideas are a dime a dozen. So coming up with the, the five to 10 big bets that will take you into the future not an easy task and so many failures and a graveyard of things that haven't worked in that space. So that's completely a talent, experimentation, product market fit problem. And then the sunsetting parts, you know, it's probably a little bit less creative, but it's a grind to know that you're on this initiative where over two years you need to shut down a business. You, if you don't catch yourself, you could really flip into a negative spiral there, right? And so I think circling people in and out of those initiatives and making sure that they're really clear on the value they're bringing to the business, it's critical. How do you help the C-suite get their teams on board with, with this kind of stuff? Because you know, people are naturally 
nervous, conservative around change because change leads to, as we've talked about, business units being shut down, other people being promoted, changes in priority, certain areas being deprecated. Change naturally makes people nervous. So you, the C-suite have got to take people on that journey, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is really well documented, but still really badly executed. And Agreed. my answer to this my answer to this, and there's lots of good books and frameworks on this, but I actually love um, Simon Sinek's book around starting with why, because mm. I found in most cases, company needs to transform. And there is a genuine why behind it. You know, we're struggling financially. We're, you know, we're unfortunately not competitive anymore. We we need to kind of right size. There's always like a genuine reason. There's, it's never that a CEO just wakes up and says, I think for fun, I'm going to transform, right? There's always like... Oh, let's, let's do something new. Yeah, exactly. Trust me, there's more fun, easier things than transforming a yeah. company, right? So so there's always a genuine why, but I feel like they never spend enough time on it. And I, the best transformations I've seen is when a CEO has come out and it's really quite emotional for them and they've had to say, we got some things wrong and this is on me. And I'm staying. I'm not running anywhere. And we're going to need to put some things right. We're actually figuring out what some of those things are. But here's where we stand today. We're non-competitive in a couple of areas. You know, we cost more than we generate. We're not as efficient as we need to be. And you can take this as sort of management BS, but here's the numbers. Here's, you know, Mm. where we stand in the market. And so there's some things we need to fix. We want to retain as many jobs as we can. And we're going to go on this journey together. And so start with that why. And then really, I often find that firms, when they design their transformation programs, they do it in a dark room alone. And then suddenly there's this big reveal to the workforce who are already irritated because it's been done in a dark room and they haven't been consulted. I never understand why they wouldn't kind of form these, I'll call them junior boards again, but groups within the org that contribute to designing the initiatives and at the very least, you'd have them on board then because you've had them engaged along the way. Does that guarantee you a better transformation? Well, you've certainly engaged the people at the beginning. So I would say it increases your odds pretty dramatically. I would also say simplicity is the key in this journey. And so there's a brilliant book that I love that's based around the DHL uh, journey, which is all about radical simplicity. In fact, that's what the book is called. Um, and it talks about their journey to kind of sh- shred the complications of their business and have less business lines and less um, jargon and less systems. And so it's funny, many people go, well, I think I need a new system. I think I need to roll out some more technology. And actually, maybe you need a little bit less in some cases. And so I often say, start with a really good why, get the people deeply engaged from the beginning so they're on the hook and they're on the journey with you communicate constantly through it at a really personal level not like a an anonymous email but go out there and stand there and like get on screen and talk to them and and be authentic yeah yeah and and talk about when things aren't working along the way because you're going to play some bets and they're not all going to work like that's that's guaranteed and then last but not least try and simplify i think we really overcomplicate things in this digital world. And I think in the end, you want great products, you want great teams, 
and you want to have a great experience for your customers. And so I think if you can get those things right, you're probably on the right track. You'd be halfway there, yeah. I think two observations on that. I think what observation number one, and we've talked about it before, but bringing people on that journey is about authenticity and vulnerability. You know, accepting that you don't have all the answers, accept, accepting that you've made some mistakes and asking for help to move it forward. And the other thing is, and, and, and you snuck it in there and got mentioned at the top of the podcast as well, but really important, letting people know that it's okay to fail. It's okay yeah. to make mistakes. You know, obviously, as a collective effort, the whole transformation has to succeed. But within that, there will be elements that fail and get dropped. And that's entirely acceptable. And I, I think too often, CEOs have needed to have stuff put in a box and every everything ticked to be 100% certain it's going to work. And before it gets funded, actually, we need to experiment with some of this stuff and they ain't all going to come off and that's okay. Yeah, I find that fascinating, right? Because if you want 100% certainty, then in my mind, that's a project you're executing. You know, that's just, mm. there's no ambiguity around that. That's something yeah. that you know very, very clearly and you've done several times before. But if you're going into the unknown, you've mm. got to accept that you're going to have some learning along the way. And so you'll structure this program with several streams. You know, there'll be a tech stream, there'll be a people stream, there'll be a product stream, et cetera. And I think you have to accept that some things just won't work in those streams. And the trick is to try and minimize the blast radius of those things, like minimize the impact when it doesn't work, capture it really quickly and pivot. And I think if you're really humble and authentic and you own those moments you know you're not hiding from them or just kind mm. of plowing ahead regardless then you won't have a problem with saying vicky i've got to call it out my hypothesis around small multidiscipline teams isn't working in this area then we quickly pivot but if you just keep doubling down because you haven't got the wherewithal and the accountability or the you're not empowered from the leadership to say stop for a moment then we're going to repeat the sins of the past i think do you think the financial models that companies operate by, um, you know, quarterly reporting to the street, et cetera, has an impact on that agenda? You know, CFOs may be needing to have stuff boxed up so that they know how much they're going to be spending and where the revenue is coming from. And Do you think that hampers innovation? It definitely plays a role. Uh, every transformation I've started with, they've, they've all been multi-year, you know, whether it's two, yeah. three, I don't think they should go longer than five for sure. I almost think five is too long, truthfully, but they're multi-year. The world's, the world's moved on by then. Yeah, but at the beginning of it, everybody accepts it's multi-year and we say you have to think long-term, you have to not start worrying about the first quarter. But the reality is they get pressure every quarter, right? So when you get a quarter or two in, they're still getting mm. that pressure and it's easy for them to revert to type. And so I think, in fairness to them, we have to help them with their personal change plan, like I said before, like learning yeah. how to operate. Because there are many CFOs that have quarterly earnings pressure. I mean, the Google one, mm. the Tesla one, they all have quarterly earnings pressure. And you know, Amazon, you name it, they, they all have yeah. it. But they still manage to think long term. And you can say that's because 
we've got big cash piles or because we're big firms. But I actually think it's more about the psychology than that, truthfully. I yeah, think it's definitely having is, definitely the is. conviction to be able to say, I have to think long term or we won't be around. And so it's yeah. not it's not optional. I need to I need to find the right balance. And then I think at the same time, there'll be I'm going to make this up, but there'll be half of the program that happens behind the scenes around, I don't know, talent and processes and, um, I don't know, marketing, for example, that won't ever have an immediate impact on kind of quarterly earnings. Those things should go ahead without the pressure of quarterly earnings. And then when there's another half of the program that's really sensitive to the earnings, if you like, then we need to treat that more differently and say, well, let's be a bit careful about this. Are we ready? If we're not ready, let's not make an announcement. And so yeah. I think the con has just got to be appropriate. But if you wrap around the whole program and say, well, we can't do anything because we've got the earnings coming up, you'll never move. You'll never try anything. Yeah. You'll never you'll never break mm. some eggs to make an omelette. It was really interesting talking to Scott Heron, the CFO. So he's CFO of Cisco now. He was CFO of Autodesk. And he talked about what he described as the golden snake, which was that J-curve it is going to drop. And actually yeah. communicating that to the street and letting them know that, that that was going to happen and to stick with them because they were going to come out of it. But actually, and he said he communicated that constantly to the employees as well so that everybody knew where they were on the journey and they predicted it up front so that it didn't come as a surprise mm. yeah i mean story transformations are a real grind even when they're working well i mean imagine yeah. you're in the middle of a you're two years in you've got 12 streams or something there's a ton of people working on it you've got more work than you could ever need you've got extra work coming from various places you've got to collaborate sort of in real time and learn new ways of working it's really complex right and so we need leaders to show that they're in this for the long term and that they're going to give us air cover and that they're going to support the amazing work we're doing because otherwise it's really demoralizing and tough to see the end through i think so that's a hell of a journey that you've been on there and if you were starting over what would you tell your your younger self you know if you go back to let's say 21, 22, when you were starting out, what do you wish you knew? Oh, that's a great question. So bearing in mind, if I were sort of talk about my career in two halves, the consulting half and now the big tech half, the consulting half was pretty corporate. You know, that's sort of the world I grew up in. And I don't know why this happened, but I became in my 20s a real people pleaser. And I had this need to create the sort of persona that I thought everybody wanted to see and that everybody would hopefully be impressed by and that would get along with the old boys club that typically existed. And it was the way I dressed, the way I spoke. I was trying to sort of copy others. And I don't know what happened. There wasn't sort of a big bang moment to change that. But my advice would be just believe that you are enough and be authentic and embrace that because you are going to be better than any fake version of you any day of the week. And when I sort of shed that, and it wasn't just one moment, but now I look back and it felt like a burden I was carrying almost. Like it's it's like you're acting almost. And I yeah. wasn't doing it in a you know, Machiavellian way, like I'm going to come in and pretend today. But I was just, I became over time this, this people pleaser and it was exhausting. 
and and I didn't like who I was. There was this moment where I looked at it and said, like, I, I don't like who I've become because bit by bit by bit you you change. And it wasn't the sort of leader I wanted to be. And that was a big part of me getting away from consulting, if you like. And that's, you know, there's great people in consulting, but it wasn't great for me. And so my advice to others would be, you know, just identify who you authentically are and embrace that and celebrate it. And if the place you're in doesn't celebrate that, I guarantee somewhere else will. That That's really interesting because... Uh, just thinking in terms of my softcat journey, and I've talked about this before. I applied to softcat really uh, to get a bit of experience before going in off going off and getting a real job with with one of the big corporates that I'd applied to and failed to get into after uni. And I genuinely think that I didn't get into Tesco and John Lewis and Sainsbury's and so on because my face wouldn't wouldn't have fitted. Uh, whereas at Softcat, I was able to be me and just get on with doing the stuff that I wanted to do, and had a magnificent twenty-year journey. So maybe I, I I learned that inadvertently early on because of the environment that I found myself in. But I definitely agree with that. You want we're back to authenticity again, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And I think if you are inauthentic, even unintentionally, for a long period mm. of time. You know, you start to hide brilliant parts of yourself. You start to hide brilliant ideas. You start to hide these interests you've got. And, you know, I just think that's really tough for people's well-being. I think you're not bringing always the best of yourself to work. And, you know, for me, I I look at it like another life almost. And uh, I'm very happy to have shed it. But I also think, you know, others should just have the confidence to say I'm, I'm different. You know, I, I think differently. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm, mm. you know, I have different preferences. I want to collaborate in different ways. I think COVID has allowed us to vocalize these things more than ever. It's okay to be different now. It's okay to feel different, to want to work differently. It will be a real waste if we let this moment go and we put the yeah. persona and the mask back on and just pretend to be somebody again. It's true. It's interesting. There was something I was listening to on the radio this morning, and they they were specifically talking about diversity in politics. And they were saying that diversity in politics is actually a misnomer because, yes, okay, so there are now more women than ever in politics, and there are more more Afro-Caribbean, more Asian people in politics, and that's all good. But they all come from the same three universities. And they've all been trained the same way. So actually, yeah, yeah. actually there's, there's, there's no real diversity of, of thought or experience. And uh, I just thought that was that was really interesting. Yeah. Scary, right? When these people are making decisions for our country and our livelihood and children, et cetera, it's, it's worrying. Mm. It is rather. It is. Yeah. But well, that's a conversation for another day, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so before we bring, we come to a close, would you mind giving us your three key takeaways for our listeners, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, this first one, I'll use a phrase that will sound a little weird in the context of the conversation today, but I always say markets go in cycles. And I mean this both in terms of jobs and careers, but also in terms of your life and your brand, your personal brand. Um, and I've learned that these kind of market cycles come time and time again. And so if I think about 2008, 
I was pummeled like Adobe, like really, really tough time. I was running a business and a consulting business and it just wasn't successful. And in hindsight, I was complacent because we'd had this crazy ascendancy and growth and I should have been able to see it coming. You know, I wouldn't have forecast the 2008 crash, but I could definitely have seen some warning signals and been more prepared. And so my message, my first message is, always be looking to disrupt yourself and continually learning. And that goes for kind of company and role you're in, but also personally, I'm a big believer that uh, happiness equals personal growth these days. And so that's the first one. Second one, I would say, I hate the, the myth that innovation is reserved for the creative few, like the people that design UI, UX and nice apps, et cetera, and kind of marketeers and nothing against those, by the way. But you also need analytical people. You also need research experts. You also need people that are brave and going to step into the unknown. And so I always say lean into innovation and think of it like a muscle to be developed, because I think everybody can play a role in it. And then the final one for me, I love the Warren Buffett quote. I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but he always <laughs> says, if you only had one car in your whole life and you needed this car to get around everywhere, to get to and from work, et cetera, you would look after this car like you wouldn't believe. You know, you would clean it. You would service it. You would stay within the speed limits. You would you'd put the right gas in it. You know, you'd, you'd just really, really look after it. And he says it in the context of, look after your body, look after yourself. And I think we are so much better informed these days than when I was first starting out. And so I'd encourage people to be intentional, not only about their physical health, which I think is what the quote is referring to, but also your social health and your mental health, because you, you as individuals are the best asset that you could ever invest in. So those are my three. Great stuff. And, our final question to you is, would you be so kind as to recommend a book for our listeners? Sure. There's one by uh, a couple of guys called Dan and Chip Heath, and the book is called Switch. And it's really on topic with the themes we've talked about today. It talks about the, the rational brain and the emotional brain and why we do what we do. And, you know, so why do we reach into the fridge and you know we're going for something healthy and then we see some cookies or some chocolates and we know we shouldn't get it and we know we're on a diet or we're meant to be eating healthy or we're trying to stay away from those things but why do we go for that and then you know there's such a quick sugar spike with something like chocolate why do we go back again so quickly and so it's that wrestling between the rational and the, the emotional brain and the, the book talks about that in the context of corporate change and changing your behaviors and how you can do the really hard things. And when I think about transformation, it's pretty hard to change a process that you've done for 10, 15 years that you know it's wrong, you know it's not optimal, but you feel really comfortable with it. And so it's it's that wrestling again between those two things. And so I think that's a really interesting book to talk to these points. And we've got to find ways to kind of wean ourselves off of these these kind of behaviors. Great. I'll, I'll look for that, that one up. Thank you. Sounds really interesting. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Anything to, add, anything to add before we wrap up? No, I've really, really enjoyed this. Thank you. I'm also going to look up the book that you talked about, um, Radical Simplicity with DHL, because as you know, simplicity is one of our core pillars 
at the Amplified Group. And, and actually, we find that be, to be a real differentiator when we're working with tech companies. And with the, the number of tech companies that are starting to come to us, well, I'm, I, I'm, 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 st- I'm still a bit staggered about the fact that, that tech, they are. Tech companies are perhaps not renowned for simplicity. No, 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 they're not. But I suppose I'm, um, I shouldn't say I'm surprised, but I'm, and humbled seems a crappy word to use as well, but it, it's just the, the reputation that we seem to have for helping organisations now is, is, is pretty cool. I'm not surprised because these firms have had several attempts at transforming to Sam's yeah. point. They've always created some Star Trek beast of a programme that's got every moving part you can imagine on it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. now they're trying to look at how can we do small kind of this is a bit overused but agile kind of initiatives where we can get some results quickly and that's what you specialize in right so i'm not surprised yeah move move fast and break things right yes exactly well to 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 darren's poster at the back there which we haven't referred to but i'm going to read it out if you're afraid to fail then you're probably going to fail who who was it that says i can't quite read that is it the lakers kobe bryant there we go Fantastic. Thank you. Brilliant. It's been so that's a, it's a good summary. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time for us. No, I've loved really it. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. That was fantastic. And it just remains for me to say thank you for listening to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group. As always, your comments and subscriptions are gratefully received. start again how do i pronounce your surname i'm really glad i've seen this before we've gone yeah brilliant well you won't insult me for a start but it's Thea. Thea. oh i could i could oh there we go it has as it's look as it looks in fact well i would think so but i get all manner of weird examples i had one today that was tayeri <laughs> oh that's brilliant i love that i would actually change it to tayeri because that's <laughs> the thing that's is awesome. My first name is Darren. My middle name is Lee. So I'm looking for anything exotic I can possibly get. So I'm all over Tyeri. Tyeri yeah. is it. In fact, I'm thinking that should be my personal brand, Tyeri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's quality. I mean, I get all sorts of variations on routes, as you can imagine. Mostly root but... Depending on whether you're really. talking to Americans or not, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right, right okay. shall we? Let's go. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>